morning, Hope. All right, all of the charismatics and the extroverts got out of bed this morning. Good to see ya. I'm Tom. If I haven't got to meet you uh, yet, we're glad you're here. If you're visiting, we're very glad to have you among us. We're going to open up to Exodus chapter 20. We're going through the Ten Commandments, and we love the law of God. Amen? Amen. We love the Word of God. We love the Gospel of God. We love the Son of God. Friends, we love the law of God. To love the law of God is to love God himself. In the law, we see God's righteousness. We see his, his, his uprightness, his perfections, and it is our duty and our glory to study them. Now, just by way of preparation for today, you're sitting here, and I'm sure you put in some effort to look uh, pretty good this morning. And get ready for this. There's probably lots of people, at least one person, and he's preaching, who looks better than you this morning. <laughs> There's at least a handful, probably a large percentage of people in here who drove a nicer car in better condition than you to church this morning. There is almost certainly, just get used to this, people with more savings in the bank, better behaved children, nicer clothes, and better branded shoes than you this morning. There's almost certainly somebody sitting in your row who is happier than you in general. The commandment we find ourselves in this morning is this. Do not covet. And I've just helped you break it before we start reading. <laughs> but just in case you've, you've thought, you know, I'm just not that sort of person. I just, that's, that's what that is, right? The inner legalist always says, well, technically, what's coveting? It's whatever you were just doing. That thing right there, that's coveting. Let's go to the Word of God now. <clears throat> you sinners. Exodus chapter 20. And verse 17, the Lord spoke from the pillar of fire. He said this, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. May God bless his own holy law and the reading of his word in our midst this morning. Amen. Amen. Kevin DeYoung and his commentary on the Ten Commandments says it, is some, it can seem a little bit fickle or strange that we start out here in this, in this uh, passage in the, the Ten Commandments with something like this. I am Yahweh, your God, have no other gods before me. And then he ends it with, get your eyes off that donkey. And you can sort of read it and it sounds so glorious and, and powerful and majestic and imposing. And, and then you get to this commandment and you go, stop looking at my neighbor's horse, ox, donkey. Really? But it is really almost, a, it's almost an application or exegesis, a bit of an exposition on every other commandment so far. In fact, if we go right back to the first of the, or the two first of the Ten Commandments and, and consider even the first table of the law of loving God, Paul says in, in the New Testament in Colossians that covetousness, looking, desiring, wanting, wishing, is idolatry. So that, so that if we were to, to knock off coveting, well, let's look at David, for example. King David, man after God's own heart. If we were to remove coveting from the table, he would not have been looking desirously at a wife that was not his own, Bathsheba. He would not have then been led to lust, which is the breaking of the seventh commandment. He would not have then stolen another man's wife and brought her to his house, which is stealing. 
He would not then have broken another commandment by committing adultery. He would then not have committed another commandment by lying to cover his traces. He would not then have committed another commandment, the sixth commandment, broken that by murdering Uzziah so that he could cover all of these tracks up. He would not have done any of these things if the tenth commandment was merely followed. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. This is... This is like the mouth of the river for so many other commandments. If you, if you just don't desire that which is sinful or that which is somebody else's or that which God has just not given to you, then there will be a thousand other sins that you don't engage upon to then gain that which has not been given. This commandment is therefore of ultimate importance, of, a, of high importance, and it belongs in the Ten Commandments despite seeming so frivolous, so, so, so inconsequential. Just don't think about other people's stuff too much. But as we've said, every commandment in the Ten Commandments shows us something about the righteousness of God. It, it shows us something about God himself. And this has some overlap with the, with the commandment of do not steal. It, what this law reminds us of is that God is the God who gives. And he gives bountifully and freely what we call the benevolence of God. Bene, like, like, like benefit, uh, meaning, meaning good, goodwill. He, he gives benevolently to all creatures. Right, the, the, the calf that just got born somewhere in rural Queensland did nothing to... Uh, I don't know if it's calving season. Neither do you. Why did I bring that up? <clears throat> Did nothing to earn from God the, the milk and the grass that it's about to... But, but God gave it to it. And you did nothing to deserve the air, the sun, the wine, the friends, the, the blessings of this life, but God gives graciously. He's benevolent. He's a God who gives. In Acts chapter 17, Paul said to the Greeks, he said, God gives himself... Sorry, God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything... Everything you have comes from God by his intentional, sovereign allocation. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You ever wish you lived in another time? Covering against God's design. He put you here, now, on purpose. Ever wish you got born in another part of the country, another nation, at a more affluent place? You, 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 you begrudge the fact that you were born in a, in a less well-to-do country and had to migrate. Don't, don't covet that which God had not given you. He has decided every birthplace, every birth date of every person that's ever been born and everything they ever received. God is the sovereign distributor according to his perfect decrees. And he gives to us both good and evil. When God is booming his voice here from Sinai, of course, there are, there's a hierarchy in place down in Israel. There's already leaders and elders that are more, more well-to-do or, or more wise or, or they're more influential than other people. God knows that there's, there's inequality. Right? God's not this, this, this ironed-out socialist communist. He doesn't say, everybody want each other's stuff, and until you all have the same amount, no one be happy. No, that's demonic. That's satanic. Satan, the great egalitarian, loves that political ideology and thought process. God says, don't covet. He's got more power than you. Don't covet. This guy came out of Egypt with more riches. Don't covet. This guy has a better looking or a younger or a more fertile wife. Don't covet. God is not saying this as if he's trying to convince us like, a, like an anxious, child-pleasing father. I gave you all. I spent the same amount on everybody's Christmas present. Please don't fight. 
It's not him. He acknowledges that he gave to different people different amounts of good, or what Job calls evil. Not because God does sin and, and authors uh, moral evil in your life, but, but Job means evil in the sense of natural evil, tragedy, horror, pain, suffering. That, that's what we might call evil. And Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. What does he say? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Not because he gave or because he took away, but because he's still the Lord. And he gives and takes what he wishes. He says in chapter 2, in response to his wife saying, God killed all our kids, curse God and die. She had the gift of encouragement. He says, shall we receive good and not also evil from the Lord our God? God gives good, he gives evil, everything we have in all of our different uh, distribution of income and socioeconomic status and jobs and family and nationality, all of it, God's intentional giving. And he puts no value, no ultimate value on any of the possessions that we have, either physical or, 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 or by way of status or our background. God puts, this is very relieving for all of us, the, the scripture says, God is no respecter of persons. That the king comes to repent of God, he doesn't give him a discount on his sin because he's a king. Your rich neighbor brings uh, his, his guilt before the Lord, he gets no discounts for being rich. None of us, by, by lacking anything, if we compare ourselves to our neighbor, are lacking anything before God. He knows what he gave us. He's a good God. He respects no possessions. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, when he was selecting the, the, the king to replace Saul. And, and Samuel the prophet went to the house of, uh, of Jesse and found all of, the, all of the, 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 the young, strong men to be kings. And God told them. God told Samuel, rather. He says, God does not think, does not value, does not look like man does. Here's what Samuel was told. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Some of you may be impoverished, you, you scrapped together your only button-up shirt to be able to get here this morning, you found somebody else's thongs and gave them a beer can to be able to borrow them, and you got here, and, and you're very poor. And some of you have rolled in in your Rolls Royce, and, and uh, somebody else parked your car, for, or it parked itself these days, and you, you wandered on in, and your shoes are squeaky, leathery, shiny, perfect, and, and your life is great, and you're very rich. God doesn't care about any of that. We're all on the same level before God and his judgment throne and before his heart. He does not respect our possessions. And that encourages us then to consider the, uh, uh, the, the law to, to think like God does. Don't covet what other people have because they are of absolutely no eternal, ultimate importance. Here's the law. Let's read it again and break up some examples. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. This is where it starts getting really, really practical. He starts listing the very things we would usually, we would usually covet. Do not covet your neighbor's house. When you're, when you're going to go pick up something off Facebook Marketplace because your wife has found something that you're going to spend the next six weeks sanding and painting and whatever. But it's a nice part of town. And they're selling it for cheap because they bought two and whatever. And you're, you're just driving to pick up something or you're picking up your kids from a friend's house or you're going to a footy game somewhere and and you just start getting a glimpse at the houses. And this is old money. 
This is like their granddad found gold and they're, they're living off it now, this sort of money. And the, they've got the nice white fence that you want and their lawn doesn't have the dumb patches like you have on your poor lawn. And, and, and somehow their dog looks richer. And the, the edges on the grass, gentlemen, the edges on the grass is perfect. Their bins aren't even dirty and they've got, they've got that car that you'd love. You pass one house and they've got one of those big, new, shiny Winnebago's off-road. And that thing that starts chewing you up inside, the coveting of, coveting of a neighbor's house. <clears throat> oh, it goes on. <coughs> you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Ladies, you don't get off easy on this. Remember, we remember the, the paradigmatic, the categorical, the, the broad way that the law of God speaks, which means when it says one thing, it means everything that leads to it and everything included in it, which means the husbands are told, as God usually does in the Bible, he speaks to the men, and through the men, he speaks to everybody else as well. So you don't covet other women's husbands. <clears throat> but he says, do not covet your neighbor's wife. You, you go to church, everybody's on their best behavior. You go to a wedding, everybody's dolled up. Maybe you go to a friend's house for a dinner party or a work party or something like that, and you see other people and you, you see his wife. And she does something, you know, she makes a great meal, she kisses him on the cheek, she puts on the footy for him, she encourages him to go fishing with his friends more often. She just does one thing that your wife hasn't done, that one thing that you would like, and you start thinking, if I just had this angelic woman in my life, how much of a more godly man I would be. Now you hear the idiocy in that kind of thinking. If I could just have another man's wife, I'd be just like Jesus. I'd just be so righteous and good and happy. <clears throat> or we see a gal with, with makeup because she's at the wedding and she's just looking good, best dress. She's laughing at her husband's jokes or she laughs at your jokes and you haven't, that just hasn't happened in a long time and you think this, this woman is the one. You look at another man's wife or women, you look at another woman's husband and I don't know, you just assume, I bet he does DIY stuff all the time without being asked. I bet when he says, I'll get to the pool cleaning, or I'll fix the hole in the wall, or I'll re-glue gun whatever that ceramic thing is again, he does it. I bet he does it within six months. And you just start thinking <laughs> what your life would be like if this man had swept you off your feet at the age of 18 instead of the, the bogus dud that you got. Oh, he seems more spiritual. Or I bet that he and her, they just read the Bible together all the time. I bet... They don't fight, and if they do, it's all, it's about how much wine to pour one another. It's about who gets to do the dishes, stuff like that. They don't fight like we fight. We covet other people's relationship and marriage. I bet they have cheese on the porch every afternoon. They, 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 all, they never fight about the chores. They, 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 they don't have, like I have, the regret. And maybe this is even legitimate. Some people, even in a biblical way, come to realize I should not have married that person, that, that doesn't mean you have an out, that, that doesn't mean that you can, you, you can just up and leave, but, but some people realize, I, I married an unchristian, that was in haste, I, I shouldn't have done, I, I, I married a fool, I, I, I did something I shouldn't have done, and, and, and here I am. That aside, still, covetousness can slip in so easily when there's the crack of self-justification, but he actually has sinned, so I don't want him as my husband, that, that's still covetousness, because he is your husband. God has still bound us together in the spirit of union. He remains yours. 
We covet other people. Maybe, maybe it's their marriage, their relationship. Maybe, maybe it's their honeymoon or a holiday they went on. You know, I got married younger. We didn't have all that money. It was a quick honeymoon. And here they are going or whatever and doing all the things I wish I could do. And, and you know what? The Lord bless them. Be, be honoring and, and favorable and happy in the happiness of other people. Or it could be we, we covet, and this is frequently applied from this, this commandment. We, we could be coveting of, of their sex life. Surely they just have an amazing sex life. They're more romantic. He's more rugged and yet perfectly polite. You know, and she's more, she's more giving and yet, and yet amazingly you know, feminine. And, and I bet they just both make more money than us. We always seek and, and tend towards jealousy. I remember in my first year of marriage, my wife and I were both, we were married pretty, pretty young, 21, average around here, but we were, we were 21, and we were both working full-time shift work as nurses. We hardly saw each other. I was doing a bunch of stuff at church, uh, more than I should have, burning candles at both ends, hardly seen each other. Uh, uh, finances were difficult. We'd moved into a, into a house out of a, a two-bedroom little apartment that we'd gotten married at in, a, in the first couple of months we were living there, and there were all these extra responsibilities to do. We were run off our feet, tired, angry, bitter, just loved each other. We wanted better, but we're just, just the juggling. And there was two guys around me that I had a fair bit to do with, and I coveted them deeply. One guy, because I went over to his house and he did the Christian thing, was very hospitable, and his house was immaculate. It, was brand, it wasn't a mansion. It was, just, it was just nice, just more organized than I was. He just had a, had a, had a, had a better handle on things, and it was new, and he, he was going to sell it soon and make this big amount of money. I could just imagine the amount of money he would be raking in. And I, I really struggled with covetousness. And I just despise that, that, that here I am stuck in this financial situation and he's just going to be raking it in. And then there was this other dude who, him and his wife, they just seemed to be best friends, lots of time together, lots of you know, wine and cheese on the picnics. And I just didn't have the time for that. We were, we were running ragged, night shift, morning shift, passing like ships in the night. And I was kind of burning against these guys and what God had given them that they probably didn't deserve any more than I did and I was fairly bitter. And then it turns out, I got chatting with one of my mates and, and he asked for prayer because this house was running him into debt. He'd like halved the cost to get the loan with his brother. They built the house, but it's now a few years on and after all of the selling and everything, the max they were going to get was about 20 grand each after about four years of work. That's not a good investment. He was stressed and then my other mate starts opening up about that his rough relationship, and they're now divorced. He was a bully. He mistreated his wife. And I, and I realized quickly that I just, you never know what's going on. How silly covetousness is that it doles up everybody else's experience with the exact things you think you're missing out on. You assume and impute that they have it, and then you desire, you covet. And, and, and that was a grace, I think of the Lord on my life to, to show me those other things, not, not to be happy, not to say, oh, well, good, no one's happy. No, there's plenty of, plenty of people being blessed around, but how, how good of a reminder. Don't covet what other people have. They may not even have it. How silly covetousness is. He goes on and he says, do not covet their male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey. This is, this is his like, in, in modern day speak, this is his station in life. This is his status. If you've got oxes and you've got donkeys, you're, you're doing pretty well. 
You have multiple, you're raking in the funds, you've got enough for investments and rental out and you're tilling the soil, you've, you've got funds, right? Income, you've got all this stuff. It says, and if you've got servants, male and female, then, then you've got a, a growing large household, you're a bit of a patriarch, you, you, you've got a, a growing, thriving family underneath you. And, and, and God is saying here, don't covet those possessions, those riches, those things that your neighbor owns. Today's example might be his, I mean, his car, his donkey, right? His car. You, maybe he's got it all paid off and you're still on some high interest loan. Maybe it's, you bet, you just know it runs smooth and his tie boot and bushel twist phalange doesn't keep on getting it run into them. That's made up, just by the way. None of you are obviously mechanics, or some of you are, and that's a thing. Maybe I just made up a thing, and it's real. But you take it into the mechanic, and you, your car keeps on getting stuck in, and it's bleeding your money, but them. You just, you see somebody else's car, and it's the car you wish you had, right, the the lifted 4B with the toe and all the, or, or maybe the mum wagon and you just, that you love that. You love the mum wagon and you wanted the leather seats and the eight-seater. I don't know. Cars. God knows our hearts. And he says, don't, don't, isn't it funny? You're reading the holy law of God and he says, don't desire other people's donkeys. And you're like, man, we're such a fickle people, aren't we? God had to say in the top 10 commandments that he ever gives us, as basis of all of his righteousness, stop desiring other people's loud, annoying, defecating animals. Yeah, we can covet anything, can't we? We're so fickle, we can desire any. The problem is the heart, not what we have, not what other people have. The problem is the heart. Maybe you desire other people's jobs, their status in life. They've just made it. You bet they don't have to struggle with the feelings of incompetence or, 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 or lack like you have. You assume they make more money than you. They have better kids than you. Maybe they have better parents than you. Let's, let them get away with more or trust them more or have raised them better. Maybe. Maybe you're covetously wishing and despising your parents because you wish you had better Christian parents. Maybe. That's a good thing to want, but to covet is idolatry. Other people go on vacations, holidays. I remember one guy, he loved his wife and he didn't make much money. And he strapped together these savings to be able to take her on a week away and it was hard to do. He'd say eight months, all this planning, a week away somewhere that was nice but not five star, but she loved it and she was thankful for it. I had this other mate. And, he, and the guy came back with his wife and he's telling, he's like, I'm so glad we were able to get away, whatever. And this other dude just goes, Psh, that must be nice. That'd be good. As if like, oh, you know, it must be nice to live in the 1%, you know. And I, I had to tell this guy afterwards, like, you have no idea how hard he worked. You don't know that that is exactly what his queen deserved and deserved it much more, but that's what he could strap together. How, how dare we just roll our eyes at the blessings or the hard work of other people? We covet, we wish, we want, we desire. Or the Lord finishes out at the last sentence of the commandment when he says, or anything that is your neighbor's. The dust on his shoes we could covet. Where that's in, don't. Nothing that God has allocated to your neighbor's should you desire. We are just, when we read this commandment and when we think through what coveting is, we realize we're just fish in the ocean being told not to be wet. The C.S. Lewis used to say about sinners, 
Sinners in sin are like fish in the ocean. We don't even understand wet. We are that. That is how we live. We have no context for anything else. And here we are, God saying, do not covet. And you think, then why live? Why am I getting up in the morning if not to do stuff, to gain more, to impress people, to end up better? I mean, why am I working harder at work if not to overtake other people? Why am I buying anything? I mean, (coughs) our wardrobes, basically all of our possessions could be just said, they are a record of whatever advertiser was able to get you to covet the most. Everything we own is almost certainly just a record of which advertisers could make us covet the most. Like we watch the the TV or see posters, they are just built on covetousness. Look what you don't have. You deserve it. You should have it. You should get it. And you can pay it off over six months. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Like $30 items you can pay off over four months because we are such a covetous people. And a ridiculous amount of credit card debt in Australia per person that we're spending on interest and spending because we just want more than we ought to have. Covetousness is the air we breathe. We want the, the shoe. Like, like sometimes, this uh, happened when I was a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor and uh, there was this kid who came to, couldn't afford the bus to get the, to youth, had to walk, but had $350 Jordans or something on. I don't know. Some, literally, the ugliest shoe I have ever seen in my life. And all the other kids could not believe that he had got them. And they were amazing, apparently. And they, he was about a foot taller when he wore them. Big bubble in them. Looked very impractical. Anyway, he's, and I'm like, why did you get them, mate? And he goes, because they're the Jordans. I'm like, yeah. Is that an answer? Yeah, but why did you get them? Because, man, they're the newest one. Uh-huh. I think that's a reason to him. I think that's how covetousness thinks. It doesn't think. It's just there's a newer one. Why would I not get it? I don't understand the question. It's the newer phone. I upgraded. What's, what's even the question? Was the other phone fine? No, it was old. This is new. <laughs> hey, okay, cool, cool. I, I get it. Hey, nice car. Yeah, yeah, it's the latest model. Sweet. Cool, why? Because it's the latest model. Are you hearing me right now? Are you, are you dumb? How often covetousness is just the air... We breathe. Now, of course, at this point, at, at some level, we, we want to be asking the question, and it's not just self-righteousness, legal, legalese in our hearts. At some point, we have to ask the question, but the Bible is not against possessions, right? God's not against blessing, and blessing is, is, off, is, is, is all-rounded. It can be financial or, or, or a car or a family. or, 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 or like. so, so what's the difference then between desiring a blessing and covetousness, because maybe it sounded a little bit conflated and mixed together this whole time I'm talking about it. You think the application today, go home and be a Buddhist. Destroy all desire so that you may live in, in, in peace and tranquility and eventually through the eightfold path, destroy all desire and, and be absorbed up into nirvana. No, you'll go to hell if you do that. The answer is not destruction of desire. Desire is good. Desire is God-given. Desire is ambition. Desire is want of blessing. Desire is, is hunger. But as sinful creatures, it is so often mingled in with sinful covetousness. So here's my, my threefold check or test definition of what distinguishes covetousness from a godly desire. A godly desire, as opposed to covetousness, wants something for the glory of God, 
wants something in a way that's still submitted to God and wants something in a way that still culminates in God himself. So we'll look at a a few different ways that might apply. But a good desire, a godly desire that is not covetousness is able to be for the glory of God. It is only attained through ways and timings submitted to God. And it is ultimately a desire for God himself which consumes all other desire. Go to Genesis chapter 3. The first instance recorded for us at least of, of covetousness. The very first ever historical instance of human covetousness. Here, the devil, wily, cunning, twisting of truth, spoke to Eve and directed her gaze to the forbidden tree, the one tree only that they were not allowed to have. This is covetousness 101. You can have everything, Eve, except the one tree. What's the devil say? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The devil makes God a prude, makes God a legalist, makes God stingy, and then thinks, I deserve much more than he could give. Justifies sin. Here's here's what happened. The woman, verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. Here's where she adds her own rule. God always needs help with extra rules, doesn't he, legalists? Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now he's wrong and he's right. They didn't die because of God's grace. They would die was the law. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And doesn't this sound good, Eve? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. What should she have said? I am like God, and I trust him for what is good and evil. I was made in his image. Whatever he's given to me on the blessed silver platter of his own providence and grace is enough for me. I don't need more. I'm not covetous, Satan. But she doesn't. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Is it a sin to desire something that is good? No. Is it a desire to desire something beautiful? No, that's why God made Eve and made her naked. Is it a sin to desire to be wise? No. Is it a sin to desire to know good and evil? No. Is it a sin to desire those things around and in disregard of what God has said? Yes. That's covetousness. You want a good thing and the devil helps you want it more and want it despite God's law. She did not submit her desire to God's glory. She would have it regardless. She did not submit her desire to God's timing or word. She would have it regardless of what he had said. And she would not have it in a way to culminate her pleasures in God. She would have it and then have it instead of God. 
This is how idolatry forms in, in and through covetousness, as Paul says it. Covetousness becomes idolatry because we want it so much that even if we don't get God at the end of it, we're fine with that. We will have it as a replacement of God. We will have it instead of God. And so we will break his law, disregard his timing in order to receive it. There, Adam and Eve, in the garden of paradise, sinned and failed through the gateway of covetousness that led them to question the word and law of God. Go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We see in Scripture a, a reflection and an echoing, what might be called a recapitulation, which is just nerd talk for a rewalking of the same path. And just like Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness, just as Israel was tempted and tested in the wilderness, just like Adam and Eve, primarily Adam as the head of creation, head of the human race, head over his wife, just as Adam was tested and tempted by the devil, so also Jesus was tested and tempted by the devil, that he might go back and do successfully, do God honoringly, do obediently what every person beforehand had failed to do. And so here we see, well, quite a, quite a, quite a, 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 a distinction, quite a contrast, don't we? Adam and Eve were where? In a beautiful garden with anything they wanted to eat. If it was hunger that Eve had, she could have just walked a meter to the left and plucked something from that tree. Where's Jesus? He's in the wilderness. He's fasting. He's hungry. He's hot. He's Adam. He's in the garden. He has a companion and a helper by his side, Eve. Jesus is in the wilderness alone. His bride, his helper, his companion, his wife, if we could call it that, is, is the lost one is under the grips of the devil. She's the one he's come to win and redeem, and he is there alone in the wilderness. The devil came and tempted Adam and Eve, and they fell. The devil came and tempted Jesus in Matthew 4, and he remained steadfast. Would it be evil for Jesus? Let's consider Jesus' desires. He knows the scriptures. He knows he's the Messiah. He's the Christ, the anointed one, the Savior, the coming King, and all of that. Does he desire exaltation? Yeah, he does. He does. He's not so humble he doesn't want to be exalted. He literally prays to God in the Garden of Gethsemane, John chapter 17, God, please glorify me. He wants glory, but he wants it God's way. Does he want a kingdom? Yeah. He came to establish and win that kingdom by his blood. Does he want uh, uh, fulfillment? Does he want food? Yeah, because he's human and he's fasting. Look at verse 8. We'll, we'll start with the third temptation and move backwards. All of these desires of Jesus, however, were not covetous because, first of all, they were focused on the glory of God. Verse 8. Uh, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Him alone shall you worship. There he is quoting Deuteronomy 6. Jesus wanted the kingdom. 
He came for the kingdoms. Revelation 11 tells us the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of God and the Christ. Yes, He's coming for everything. He's come to save the world and to redeem back what was lost. But He would not have it if it entailed giving glory to the devil. And so He refused. Look at His second temptation. And here we see that despite His desires, which we all have, good desires, godly desires, He was submitted to God's word. Verse 5 says this. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. This is in the midst of Jerusalem. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. I mean, heck, doesn't the Bible say, that's my translation, doesn't the Bible say, he will command his angels concerning you and On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Right? He's a prosperity preacher. He says, go on, jump off. God won't let harm come to you. And Jesus says to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here's what's going on in Jesus' mind. He knows that he was sent to be exalted by God to be saved by God, to be glorified by God, and to crush Satan's head. He knows that. But he knows the Bible better than Satan. Satan had just quoted to Jesus Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. He won't let you hurt yourself. He will rescue you. The angels will be sent concerning you. Here's what verse 13 and 14 say. Speaking to ultimately Jesus. You will tread on the lion and on the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. What's that sound like? Sounds like the prophecy God gave to Adam and to Eve concerning the Messiah. He will crush, and and it spoke it actually to Satan himself, the coming one will crush your head, serpent. What's Jesus saying to Satan? Read the context, buddy. I crush your head. I crush your head at the end of this. And it's not because I put God to the test. Listen to the rest of it. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Yes, salvation. Yes, deliverance. Yes, rescue. But after he is obedient to the law and goes to the cross in death, then God will save him. Then the angels will exalt him and be with him in the uplifting from death. Jesus, like us, we we want something good, maybe something the Bible holds out as as a blessing, and we try and shortcut it with our own ways. We want a relationship, and there's no Christians around So we'll find a non-Christian and the God stuff will come later. I'm sure they'll convert. I want babies. God's not giving me a partner. I'll figure that out myself. I, I want money. I'm in business. It's taking time. I want to leave something to my children. I can break God's law and be dishonest and then gain the blessing myself. Covetousness wants something regardless of the law of God. A desire that is godly, like Jesus says, I want that, but it is likely going to be after a valley. It is likely going to be after following the law. It is likely a blessing that comes at a costly obedience first. That's a difference between covetousness 
and a good and godly desire. <coughs> and here we see also, look at verse 2, a culmination of desires ultimately in God. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It was a fine desire to be hungry. It was a fine thing to say to the Lord God, I am starving. It was a sinful thing to shortcut that and to desire the bread more than God. To desire the food and the filling more than God himself. And he says, hey, I've got the word of God. I don't need food. My desire is for something good, but if God says no, I have God. What else do I, do I need? As, as Hebrews 13 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can mere man do to me? Here's the question. When you have a desire and, and, and you think it's probably covetousness or, or you're at least convicted or you want to know if you did not have that, while you do not have that and you remind yourself that God says to you from heaven in all glory, majesty and might, he says to you, I am with you. And you still feel dissatisfied? You've got a problem far deeper than that thing is ever going to be able to solve. You have a covetousness, idolatrous problem. And it needs repenting and it needs confession to the Lord God. Three things that usually cause our, our, uh, 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 our covetousness. One is worry. One is worry. Some of you... You don't think yourself worldly and covetous and, and materialistic because you're just, you're a humble gal, but you're a warrior. And it is actually covetousness. You have all this anxiety. You, you want these things. Things aren't happening. You fret. You're not sure of your safety. You're not sure of the future. You're not sure of your family. You're not sure. All these bad things could happen. Like Aunt Josephine out of uh, Lemony Snick, it's a series of unfortunate events. And, and you say, well, it's because I care so much. No, it is in fact covetousness. Jesus himself, when he was speaking about worry, right, we usually start out the, the section in the Bible where it says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What's the therefore? The line before that, God, Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. Therefore, don't be anxious about your life. Often covetousness is due to worry or is hidden by worry or looks like worry. We're, we're worrying about safety or family or funds and it is ultimately because we are forgetting that God is a good father. Jesus goes on to say, don't be anxious, saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. The other day, the boys have a rule. They're not allowed out of their bedroom until I'm up. And sometimes they wake up before me or out of my office later than they're awake and walk past. And my oldest son said to me, dad, you forgot us. I'm hungry. I said, do you, do you think I'm not aware that you need breakfast? How many days have I not given you breakfast? You, I'm your dad. I know what you need. I didn't forget that you're hungry. Just a couple of days ago, I walked past their room, doors still closed, and I hear my younger son saying, Dad forgot us. They mimic each other. And my older son says, hey, 
Dad knows what we need. He doesn't forget we're hungry. Dad win. There's a hundred opposite stories I could tell you, but that was a win. And here's Jesus. Sometimes, sometimes we're the older brother. Sometimes we're the younger brother. Sometimes we're both within an hour. And we need to tell ourselves, do you think God forgot? You think he doesn't know our, your need? And sometimes we're the other person. Go, what, what on earth is going to happen if I don't get this sorted? Jesus says, you don't sort anything by worry. In fact, you need to uproot your covetousness and say, if God hasn't given it yet, he's Lord, not me. He's dad, not me. He's father, sovereign God, not me. He has my needs sorted. Sometimes it's not worry, it's more impatience. And this is just the marker of immaturity, of, of, of youthful folly, is impatience. It doesn't mean you're, you're an idiot. It means we're all born with this and it just comes away. One of the most painful things in the Christian life is a self-aware immaturity. You look at yourself and you go, that's dumb. Why do I feel that? Why do I want that? Why can't I be more like that? And it just doesn't solve because you know it. So you're stuck with sanctification process. And some of us are young or, or we, have, we have folly in our hearts even though we're old and so we're impatient. So, so I want marriage. I want kids. I want financial stability. I want this or that. Or I want a better behaved child. Or I want a better marriage. And, and we're simply impatient. And what we're saying to God is, I should have it now. You've not given it. You are in the wrong we desire what we can't have, not because God said no, just because he said not yet. Impatience, a youthful folly of desiring what has not yet been given to us needs to find its, its resolve in Hebrews 13.5. The Lord is my helper, what can man do to me? God has said he will not leave me or forsake me, come what may. The other reason is self-absorption, just self-absorption. You see something somebody else have and you go, I deserve that as much as them. Stuff them. Why do they get to have that? It's a despising of other people because of their goods. But ultimately, it's a despising of God. We're saying to him, justice says, I deserve it at least as much as them. Usually we'll think, I deserve it more than them. They don't deserve that. That marriage, that house, that blessing, that income, whatever it be. Here I am, Lord. Justice says I deserve it. I don't have it. Ergo, you are unjust. You are wrong. You are guilty of a vile evil. And to this, God would remind us of what we truly deserve. This is where covetousness ends. Whenever you feel yourself with a desire that doesn't care about God's glory, that's impatient and willing to break his laws, and that ultimately wants it more than God, here's what we do. You remind yourself what you deserve. Which because of every guilty desire of covetousness and every other instance of breaking these Ten Commandments is an eternity of unending, increasing, unimaginable torment in the hottest of hells. And I have an atheist mate who always goes to this and goes, thought crimes. God's a tyrant. He cares about thought crimes. Do not commit adultery, I understand. But he cares what I think. I said, friend, you have no clue of the holiness of God. Of course he cares what you think. You think that a, that a thought is so small. It can, God doesn't need to punish that. Of course he does. Holy is God. This is one of the purposes that the law is given to us from God. 
do we look at it and realize he is so much more infinitely holy than I ever imagined or let myself believe I have no chance at getting through on my own obedience. I have no chance, friends, you have no chance whatsoever of ever getting even imaginably close to passing God's judgment standard. The, the, the purpose of the law is to smack us silly, show us how filthy we are, strip us of every argument, duct tape our mouth shut, brand us with guilt, and smack us on the behind, sending us to the cross. So get out of here. What are you doing trying to get to God by your obedience? Your righteousness is filthy. You're a covetous, idolatrous, adulterous, thieving, blaspheming human being. You are vile and you can't be cleaned by the law. Run to Jesus, the God-man perfectly lived. Never was covetousness, never was covetous, never sinned in any way. No thought, no act, deed or word. Pure, perfect, undefiled, put up on the cross to absorb the wrath of God against our sin. The one needed, the one perfect, the one sufficient, powerful sacrifice for anybody's sin that will ever come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus by faith and repentance. Believe in his sacrifice. Ask God to change your heart. Give you one that believes in him. You will be saved. Now at the foot of the cross, can you ever imagine covetousness growing? It is the great, great weed killer. The blood of Jesus is the great weed killer against any of the bitter roots of covetousness. When you remember what you deserved and what you have freely been given who cares what your neighbor's got? Let's pray. Father God, you have given richly, bountifully, and wonderfully in mercy and in great pity and in great grace in Jesus Christ. You have given literally everything you could ever give. You gave yourself. You held nothing back because in Jesus is the absolute fullness and exact nature of you. In Jesus is everything that could ever be imagined and infinitely more. In Jesus is everything we could ever want and more. And in all of eternity, at the end of millions of eons, we will still never have a single drop of desire that he will not completely and utterly be able to satisfy. Lord God, in Jesus, you give everything we need. For in him, you gave the forgiveness of sins, the meeting of justice, the, the atonement for our guilt, and the accepting of vile sinners through his blood. We ask, Lord God, that anybody here who still, still stands cloaked in their own sin, that as the x-ray of the law comes over them, it still sees covetousness all throughout them and sees on their record that it is unpaid for and that they still deserve to die, would you please send them to Jesus? Would you please give them faith right now in this moment? Would you please give to them a, a heart to cry to Jesus and say, save me, a filthy sinner, have mercy on me, so that they can be cleansed and washed and their debts forgiven. Father God, would you make us a people that are thankful, not covetous, that are patient, not impatient, and that desire above all you and your glory. We ask all these things in the name of the God-man, our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.
This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.